You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, before we move into our next topic, which is going to be observation, I just wanted to spend a minute or two and see if you had uh, any questions about what we talked about last week. We talked about a, the two schools of interpretation that arose up and how they influenced the church and how they didn't influence the church. And also, uh, we looked at some uh, criteria for um, actually evaluating interpretive systems. So I wanted to see if you had any thoughts or questions on anything we talked about last time. Okay. Um, over the week, I thought a little bit about more of these four criteria. And um, there's some biblical passages. Psalm 73 is one uh, chapter that uh, you could look at. Asaph, who wrote that, remember he was struggling with what he saw around him. Uh, he saw, and it's kind of an age-old conflict or struggle, the, uh, what he saw when he looked at the world around him was the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. And he was a man who knew God, right? So he had trouble reconciling those two things. And then it says, until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then he saw their end, how it was going to end up for them. And as I, as I thought through that, I thought, okay, he, he started out, he did not have the comprehensive picture, right? Didn't see everything. And so there's an application of that. I also thought about um, an author. Uh, and the one I thought about was uh, J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling, who wrote the, uh, the fantasy series, you know, Harry Potter. Now, she's an exceptional writer. And uh, she wrote, I think there's five or six of those, and then the movies, so she's also an exceptional businesswoman, right? But an author can write a novel and a story, and internally it can be, have some consistency among the characters and so on, and uh, it, can, uh, it can tell the story, but what it can't be is comprehensive. Why? Because if she opened that up and let reality in, it would disintegrate her story. Because there's no such thing as a kid that can do that stuff, right? So there's, there's an application. As long as it, it's a closed system, there can be some internal consistency and coherence and so on. But you can't be comprehensive with a fantasy novel, okay? So there is also, for our application, there are theological systems that, that make a lot of sense to people. But what they are not is one of those four or a combination of them, okay? So that's just something else, and you can take those, you can apply them to various things. Okay, if there's no other thoughts on that, how about page 10? Questions from last week. The literal method of interpretation, you can just call these out. We don't need to be formal here. We're, it's just like, a, just think of it being like in your living room, you know? Uh, well, maybe not in your living room. I mean, don't, you know, I'm glad you're well-dressed, but I mean, just call out the answers. The literal method of interpretation is primarily associated with what city? Antioch, yeah. And it's Antioch in Syria, the one up on the Arantes River. And, of course, there was that other one that became prominent as well called Pisidian Antioch up in that other province. And 
Two, the allegorical method of interpretation is primarily associated with what city? Alexandria, right, back down on the, uh, uh, on the uh, Nile Delta there. Okay, how about some true or false? Historically, the literal method of interpretation lost out to the allegorical one. True. Until the Reformation, right? And then they recovered that literal method. If I allegorize, the text itself is not being interpreted or exegeted, but eisegeted. True, yeah. Exegeted, you draw out. Eisegeted, you re you're reading into it. You want to do the first one, not the second. And then this one is really important. This is, this is really key for understanding what's going on here. Allegorizing shifts the authority from the text to the mind of the interpreter. That's true, yeah. You see how, see how devastating that can be to the Word of God, if people do that to the Word of God? Because the meaning of, of the Bible, the meaning of it, is the text. And if you sever that connection, you basically take the meaning, and it can just depends on who's, uh, who's dealing with it, right? So a reformation of hermeneutics produced the reformation of doctrine. That's true. They got back to a literal, historical, grammatical, interpretive methodology. The literal method of interpretation does not account for figures of speech. That's false. Of course it does, yeah. The literal method is the method used by Jesus. True. And the prophets, and the apostles, and the early church. It's okay if my interpretive method produces results that are contradictory. <laughs> That's false. Gnostics thought the material world was inherently evil. True. What did God say at creation? It's good, and, it's, and once he created marriage, it's very good, right? And what do they do? They create a false dichotomy between that which is material and that which is spiritual. And you even see that now. You can talk to people, and they can talk. They can be living the, the worst carnal lifestyle, and yet if you talk to them about Christ and the things of the, the Bible, they might say something like, well, hey, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, and I'm not religious. Mm -mm, no, but I am spiritual. Ever meet somebody like that? I have lots of them. And so there's this dichotomy that they make. Um, ask them what you mean by spiritual. Have them define it. And it's probably really hard for them to actually tell you what it is, which raises another question, then how do you know you are it? Right? But that's a different story. The Reformers only reformed a part of Catholicism. There is still much work to do. True. Fairly narrow area, and thankfully that they did. The, mainly doctrines of grace and some other issues, but there was other things they did not. So number four, when he gave the Israelites the law, including very detailed instructions to construct the tabernacle, ark, worship regulations, dietary rules, dress codes for the people and the priests, with all the do's and don'ts, God expected them to interpret his word literally. They couldn't even wear clothing of mixed fabric. Boy, that would be terrible nowadays, right? And five, in his 1,000-page Biblical Theology of the New Testament, Dr. Greg Beale, an amillennialist, does not comment on the cha on 11th chapter of Romans, the chapter that deals with the question of God's rejection of his people, the Jews, and their future salvation in the future millennial kingdom. I have that book, and it's massive, it's huge. It's a Biblical Theology 
Um, and, and when you hear that biblical theology, don't, it, it, it is theology that's biblical, but it's a kind of theology, okay? It, it lies, those kinds of works lie in between exegesis and systematics. So systematics would be the comprehensive study of all Scripture. So a biblical theology would be more thematic. You might do a biblical theology, let's say, on the, the Holy Spirit in Luke-Acts, okay? So they're narrower in scope. But then you would then take that and also perhaps um, biblical theology of the Old Testament, and you would use those studies to try to come up with a systematic theology, which would encompass everything. So that's what that is. He doesn't comment on that chapter. This is an example of not being, what is it? Comprehensive. Yeah, he left it out. And I have other, other theological works, too, that do exactly the same thing. Um, they leave things out. Here is a, um, there's a book that was published, 2012, The Restoration of Israel, Israel's Regathering and the Fate of the Nations in Early Jewish Literature and Luke Acts. Okay, scholarly book done in German by a German um, publisher, can't even pronounce the name, some of these hyper uh, hyper scholarly publishers, um, the Kindle version costs one hundred sixty eight dollars. The hardcover two hundred and ten dollars. So these are not these are designed to go in a theological library someplace, you know. Okay, um, the restoration of Israel. Now I haven't bought this, but I have it on good uh, uh, account by someone who has read it. He does not even deal with the use of the word restoration that Peter uses in Acts chapter 3, when he actually uses the word restoration, the noun. Okay, It's not in the book, but he says it's Luke, Acts, and so on. And he also, the verb form is used in Acts 1.6, when the disciples ask Jesus after a 40-day clinic on the kingdom, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Okay, doesn't deal with it. That's, they're not comprehensive. And it's very interesting when you read the uh, little abstract of what this is about, it talks about um, he's studying extra-biblical Jewish literature of the day, of the time, and that uh, the framework of it, through this framework, Jews in the Greco-Roman period could draw on Israel's history and legacy, but reappropriate, quote, exile and return, quote, in new and creative ways. You hearing anything there? What do you mean reappropriate? New and creative ways? Finally, the writing of Luke's Acts is investigated for its ideas of restoration and its indebtedness to early Jewish traditions. Luke and Acts, according to him, is indebted to early Jewish traditions. Okay, You hear what's going on there? They are relying on extra-biblical data, things that are not inspired. And, uh, well, that's what Luke and Acts does, too. I don't think so. I think they rely on what we've seen so far as foundational. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And that, uh, if you read that title and then spent $210, I know I'd be disappointed if I couldn't find anything on the restoration of Israel. Okay, that's just one more example, and, and there's more as well. Um, you have to be comprehensive. And number six, Here's a quote from um, Pastor MacArthur from a book, Hermeneutics, Inerrancy in the Bible, Papers. Now, that's a massive work 
that is a product of both of those um, conferences that you guys have the uh, the uh, the notes of or the actual product of. Okay, the the biblical council on inerrancy and the one several years later on uh, on hermeneutics. Well, they they produce several works and. Uh, Pastor MacArthur contributed to some of that. Here's what he says. The only logical response then to inerrant scripture is to preach it expositionally. By expositionally, I mean preaching in such a way that the Bible is presented entirely and exactly as it was intended by God. In the above quote, the italicized, and it's that way in the original, are a good example of what two characteristics of a valid interpretive system. First of all, entirely. Comprehensive, yeah. It's got to include all the, all the pertinent information and exactly. Which one is it? Congruent. It has to fit. Your exegesis has to fit the text. And, of course, as you might guess, Pastor MacArthur uh, nails it right there. Okay, so any other thoughts you might have on any of that? Well, your reading for, for this week was chapter 4, um, and uh, talks a lot about the cultural gap. Now I got some notes that are that are going to be uh, reproduced to somebody who's uh, technically competent comes here. I know I'm not. Kathy's coming. She's not coming just for that, is she? Oh, okay. And uh, so there's uh, I'm, I have a handout for that. And uh, but uh, if you don't have any questions on the reading from from Dr. Zook, I want to take a look at just a minute at, for that at that article, the student efficient Augustus on page 77. Let's turn there for just a minute. Hope you had a chance to read that. A lesson in observation. Most of my illustrations are at least 100 years old. This one I think is 150, but it's still pretty good. So um, what were your thoughts or impressions on this article, if you had some? Okay, What did you, what did you see going on here? since we're going to be talking about observation. Anything in particular? Catch your eye? Persistence. Persistence, okay. Yeah, that was one of the things that uh, Professor Agassiz was trying to tell him. Uh, he Take the fish, down about halfway down that first page, take the fish and look at it. We call it a hem hemilon. And by and by, I will ask you what you have seen. Just observe the fish. Two paragraphs down, in 10 minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. What's going on here? He's what? Okay. Um, there's something in us that might say, yeah, I got it all. I saw that. What's that? Yeah. He assumed he, he assumed he was being comprehensive in his knowledge of that fish, right? Dr. Uh, Professor Agassiz comes back, and uh, what does he say? Keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. Okay? And uh, interesting, too, he wanted to use some tools because he was an entomologist on uh, top of page 78. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were interdicted. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. That's all he could use to make these observations. Okay? And then... He was taking some notes. Next line down, a pencil is one of the best eyes. I'm glad to notice, too, that you keep your specimen wet and your bottle corked. Okay. With that, he leaves him there again. 
He comes back again and about mid-page, look again, look again, and he left me to my misery. And what was his response? I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to the task with a will and discovered one new thing after another until I saw how just the professor's criticism had been. Okay? Just pressed a little bit more, kept looking, persistence. Right? And he did say, I see how little I saw before. Now down there toward the bottom, um, he even tells him more, look more, read more. He says, put it away. Go home, I will examine you before you look at the fish in the morning, okay? This was disconcerting. Not only must I think of my fish all night studying without the object before me, what this unknown thing that he was looking for, but most visible feature might be, but also without reviewing my new discoveries. Go home and think about it. You're not going to have it in front of you. What does he want him to do about what he has observed? What is it? Yeah, reflect. Memorize. Memorize. Biblically speaking, we might say Psalm 1. How blessed is a man who, uh, on the law, he meditates day and night. What we're going to be seeing in our studies is meditation is very important in Scripture. Um, These people did not have their own copy of Scripture. Many of them, most of them probably couldn't read it even if they did. Okay, the, So much of what they learned, they learned by hearing. So you see the repeated stress throughout Scripture on hearing, hearing. Even the great Shema from Deuteronomy 6, the, the, the theme verse of the nation of Israel, Shema Israel. Okay, Hear, listen, and that's true even into the New Testament. Uh, they had to learn by hearing. And so what what is... What is in Scripture an awful lot of the times are things that help them memorize port- and create portability of the Word of God. And they were to take that home and meditate on it. Okay, They had to. They didn't have a copy of the Scripture to go back and read it over and over again. Well, finally, the student, um, again, is told, look, 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 with the repeated injunction. And then finally, in the middle of uh, page 79 there, The fourth day, a second fish of the same group was placed beside the first, and I was bidden to point out the resemblances and differences. Okay, Once he had learned the characteristics of that first fish, that helped him when he saw an additional fish. Same thing's true in Scripture, right? What you learn about one area of Scripture, you can... It'll help you make comparisons and differences when you look at other parts of the Bible as well. And then he he began to uh, think about what he had learned um, of the way that the professor was teaching him. And one of the things that uh, always stands out to me there toward the bottom, facts are stupid things, he would say, until brought into connection with some general law. That's what we would call coherence. It makes sense. When you see the parts in relationship to each other, then you can see the holistic picture, right? A, a, a unity that's there. Okay, well, enough of uh, the fish and agassiz. Unless you have some other thoughts or questions about it, let's look at observation, okay? We're going to be um, 
now moving into the uh, three tools for the toolbox. Observation, interpretation, application. Observation, what do I see? All right? What do I see? Observation, which is going to lead us to talk about interpretation, which is then going to lead us into application. They're connected. Uh, they're different, but they're connected. And uh, so observation this week. Observation, what do I see? Back in the uh, 19th century, a painting was produced of a medical school. And the way they used to do it back then was to have this... Uh, kind of an amphitheater so the students could actually look down on the operation or the examination or whatever it was. So this became kind of a famous uh, uh, painting it, in the uh, 19th century. It's kind of cringeworthy. Look, they had got a guy holding it down over here, and uh, the students are in various levels of interest. Uh, this guy's asleep over here. The professor, he's standing there, you know, and uh, boy, it's kind of grim. The story is also told of a medical school situation like that that had first-year medical students, and they were sitting around in a row looking down at the uh, theater, as they call it, and that's actually what it was, a theater. And uh, they wheeled in a patient who was sick and suffering. The professor talked about the patient and the importance of observation. He needed to teach these first-year medical students how to observe what was going on with the patient. You have signs and you have symptoms. The patient tells you what the symptoms are, but the doctor has to observe the signs. Very, very critical. So at one point then, the attendants wheeled the patient back behind a curtain, and a couple minutes later, one of them walked out with a beaker of yellow liquid. And the professor said, we even have to observe bodily fluids. And he began to talk about this beaker of yellow fluid. You need to observe the color and describe the color. Is it yellow? Is it straw? Is it pale? How about the clarity? Is it cloudy? And how cloudy is it? All these different parameters he went over with these students as they wrote these all down. He said, we even have to uh, see, is it, uh, as they say, sanguineous? Is there any blood in it? And so on. All these different things. He said, we even need to smell the aroma of it and be able to describe what it smells like. And finally, he said, there's one more test we have to do. We have to do the taste test. <laughs> and he dipped his finger in it and put it in his mouth and tasted it. And he said, now, I want all you students to do every single one of these tests. And he handed it to the first person, and the first person wrote everything down, did all the descriptions, and did the taste test. And it went all the way down the line. And then finally, it came back around to him. And he said, okay, let's talk about your results. And uh, they went through all the results and, okay, what did it taste like? And down all through, all the way, I get down to the last guy, and he did the description, the color, the fragrance, and all the rest of the taste test. And he says, very good, very good. You all did fairly well. Um, but I just wanted to tell you, if you really would have been observing me and what I was telling you, when I dipped my finger in, I dipped my index finger into it, but I licked my little finger. <laughs> Observation. Think they remembered? Probably. Observation. Okay, let's have a little fun here. How about observing? How many squares? Kids love these things. These are great with kids. How many? Okay, if you showed this to your kids, 
They, <laughs> they would probably say, yeah, one, two, three, four, five, sixteen. Okay. I got twenty-five. But before you do that, you'll give them the answer. Twenty-six. Twenty-seven. Thirty. Okay. So you would then show them something like this. Yes, there are sixteen, and we'll add the overall and make that seventeen. Okay. Well, then how do you get to thirty? You get to thirty like this. So seventeen. 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. Answer? You forgot one. 30. Oh, no, you got it. Never mind. Once you see that and do that, it's going to be real easy for you then to think in those terms because it's kind of implanted in your thinking, right? Okay, well, what else? Observation. How about this? What do you see there? Okay. This is also about a hundred and some years old. This, this came out in a German magazine way back in the end of the 19th century. When I do this with uh, younger people, I have it on a piece of paper, and I have half the room close their eyes, and I show it to them this way. And then I say, okay, you put your head down, and you, you look now. And then I show them this one. And then I, when I'm all done, I say, now what did you see? One half says, well, I saw a duck. And the other half says, no, I saw, I saw a rabbit. Okay. Well, you could even show it to them like this, right? It's the same picture. And it just depends on your perspective. Observation. Um, what do you see? What do you see? Before you can determine what it means by interpretation, you have to observe it. You have to see it for what it is. And, of course, we're totally dependent on God for that. Many places in Scripture, we're going to look at some of them, but here's one, Psalm 119, at the top of your page, verse 18, Open my eyes, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Even though they had the law, they still recognized their dependence on God to see what was actually there. And uh, so important, so critical. And uh, but what, let's let's look at number number one there Roman numeral one and um, I just put this in here because I think it's important to know what's at stake. What's at stake here? We are in a spiritual war, of course. Now, if you were learning anything, learning plumbing or learning sales or anything, that would be important. It'd be a craft, a trade, or a profession, something like that. But what we're doing has eternal consequences, does it not? And uh, so that's what's at stake. We're in a formidable spiritual war. And there are several verses here. And I've only selected out a, a few of them to read. I'll trust you guys that you will read them uh, on your own. Um, we're in a formidable spiritual war. 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. Now, fight the good fight. Paul even said that he had done that at the end of his life. And then how about 1 Peter 5, 8? Yeah, we're in a formidable spiritual war, and we have formidable enemy. Okay, we also have uh, formidable enemies there. And Second uh, Corinthians eleven tells you how he does what he does. Second Corinthians eleven thirteen through fifteen. Yeah, disguising themselves as angels of light. Of course, they're not going to. They're not going to. Uh, they're going to look and sound an awful lot like real. Bible teachers, Bible expositors, they're going to use biblical language, but as we've seen, there's going to be a twist on it. There's going to be a, a redefinition of biblical terms. Biblical jargon without biblical definitions is heresy, right? And also, 
Luke 22, 31 through 32. Yeah, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Um, there's a little grammatical issue there. Oh, thanks. Um, the first you is plural. You don't see it in the English. The second one is singular. Satan has desired to sift you all like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Peter. You know what the difference between Judas and Peter was? Peter was probably a little smarter, you know? No. Uh, Judas was the smartest one of them all. He kept that money bag and pilfered it for three years and nobody even knew it. No, the difference was that intercession by Jesus prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The only thing that keeps us from being a Judas is the intercessory work of Christ in our lives, right? What we saw from Hebrews 7.25, he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. Apart from that, Peter would have collapsed just like Judas did. His faith didn't fail, even though he you know, got weak in the knees, he got intimidated by a little girl, and then he denied even knowing Christ, but his faith did not fail. Judas never had faith, and that was the difference, the intercessory work of Christ. Okay, And then uh, D, we have formidable weapons. We're not left without weapons. And uh, Exodus 14, 13 and 14. I got this one. Got a free bookmark too. Well, that's kind of nice. Children of Israel have been released from their bondage in Egypt. They're making their way out into the wilderness. Pharaoh finds out about that and gathers his army to chase them down and kill them. All right, and they're getting a little nervous because they're looking back there, and here he comes. Okay, so um, I say 13 and 14, but look at verse 10, or just listen to it. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You know, they're just getting turned into jello, you know, when they look at this army chasing after them. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And you know what happens after that? He parts the sea, they go through, the Egyptians try to chase them, and they disappear into the ocean, just like Moses said. So we have formidable, it's a formidable spiritual war, formidable enemies. We have a formidable commander who is on our side, who's redeemed us, who intercedes for us, who fights for us. We also have formidable weapons. Uh, and I think I jumped over Psalm 28, but you can look at that one on your own. Exodus 14, 13 through 14 is where that is. But also 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. Yeah, we have formidable weapons um, and we don't fight this warfare the same way pe other people fight wars. Um, we, we, we tear down the strongholds by using the Word of God. Okay, So, in order to do that, 
This is Roman numeral two. We need to read or observe Scripture in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Scripture affirms our total dependence. He's sovereign over what we see, as we saw in Psalm 119. This has always fascinated me. Um, we have this promise from the upper room, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And from Luke chapter 24, the morning of the resurrection, these are some disciples walking down the road to Emmaus, and they have this encounter with Jesus. And it happened that while, and I encourage you to read that entire passage, I'm just gleaning out from it these, these particular statements of, of what happened and how you can know the, our dependence on the Spirit to understand things. And it happened that while they were conversing and debating, Jesus himself approached and was going with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And that next paragraph, And it happened that when he had reclined at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and after breaking it, he was giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And then, verse 44 and following, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. First one, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is, this is the absolute sovereignty of God in helping us understand what's going on with the scriptures. Okay. I always think of uh, Acts chapter 16 and Lydia and um, where she had that encounter with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, it was the Sabbath, and he uh, went on the Sabbath always to the Jews first. Um, but there was no synagogue, but so they would always gather where there was water. And so it was an outside gathering, and he's preaching. And it says of Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Again, absolute sovereignty of God in her salvation. Okay? So critical. We're absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit to help us observe uh, what God has for us in His Word. And then, B, Scripture, which is written by the Holy Spirit, promises to bless those who read it. Revelation 1, 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. It's always kind of, uh, I thought, always kind of ironic that the book of Revelation um, it is said that it suffers as much from its friends as from its enemies, okay? And yet it's a book that promises blessing if you just read it, right? And uh, so that's also, since it's the last book in the canon, could we not say that that's also true of everything else in Scripture? I think so. And here, just a reminder from Psalm 19, um, you're, you see these statements about the Word of God and then what it does, okay? Those are always together. Even that verse from... Uh, from First Timothy, you know, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And it tells you what is profitable for as, and all those things. So the law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. Precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. And of course, there's so many other 
verses and passages you could find. Psalm 119, that massive long uh, psalm, is all about the Word of God and what it does. Okay, And so see, Scripture, of course, by the Holy Spirit, reveals its truth to those who are obedient. And then 2 Timothy 2, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman, got to work at it, who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So, um, any thoughts or comments you might have on that so far? So we read Scripture like a warrior. We read it in dependence on the Holy Spirit. And then at the top of page 12, we read the Scripture, and there's a list of how we are to read it. First thing, we should read it thoughtfully. How about Romans 12, 1 through 3? Yeah, here the renewing of the mind. And then three times in that passage, think, thinking, think. The mind is absolutely critical. Um, so we need to study, read thoughtfully, and then repeatedly. Um, as uh, Professor Agassiz proved, you know, one look is not enough. You got to go back to it over and over and over again. We're told that. How about Psalm 119? 97. And I said, and I said in following there, because you could go that, well, we won't, we'll just read verse 97 there. Yeah, I think about them all day long. There's meditation on them all day long. It's, it's repetitive reading, but also repetitive thinking on it. Okay. So we read thoughtfully, we re repeatedly, and also patiently. The race we run is a walk. Paul uses this over and over again. It's a walk. And it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It doesn't matter if you get there first. Okay, Got to be patient. Patient with yourself as you study the Bible. We're all in different situations, different schedules. Um, you may not study or read or have a devotion time at the exact same time or way that other people do. You might do it in different ways. And that's okay. You do it as the Lord lead, leads you. And then we are to read the Bible selectively. Psalm 119.37. I got that one because I like this verse. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Boy, does that ever apply to us here and now? How much worthless stuff can we look at, right? I mean, it's, you're just bombarded by it, and it's right at your fingertips. Um, it, it, this is so unique in human history to have the information and the data and everything. Uh, I mean, it used to be if you were uh, going to look at something raunchy or let's say even pornographic, you had to go out of your house down to the nearest newsstand and purchase it, right? And But now you don't have to go to it. It's going to come to you, and it is, right? Worthless things. And the prayer is that just... Lead me away from it. I don't want to have anything to do with things that are worthless. Okay? So you have to read, you have to study selectively. And even in Christianity, in evangelical Christian literature, there's a lot of stuff out there that's it's, it's a waste of time. Okay? So it's very important to learn where you can really find things that help you understand the Word of God better and not waste your time on stuff that uh, talks about Jesus, talks about religion or Bible things, but it's really not going to help you understand the, the Word of God any better. And then here's linking this back to our dependence. Uh, read the Scripture prayerfully. Pray. Ask God, like Psalm 119, open my eyes. Help me understand this. And He will. And then F, 
read imaginatively. Now, it doesn't mean imagine something and impose it on the text, but just think about it. Think about what it was like for those Israelites. It really happened. That was an historic event. What was it like to walk through that the 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 sea dry shod and look at those the mountain of water on each side, right? I mean, what was going on there? Where they say, "Hey, look at that starfish over there," and you know they walked right through, and then to see it collapse on the Egyptians, which it did. Um, imagine yourself in those situations. Put the verse in your own words. Practice explaining it to a six-year-old or a ninety-six-year-old. Practice creating exegetical and expositional statements. Now we're going to talk about this a little later on. Remember early on we talked about don't let the Bible find its endpoint in you. That's not God's intention. We're supposed to be simply those that take it in and pass it on to other people. Okay? Our task is to tell people what God says. Okay? That's it. And again, whether it's gathered around your knee in your living room with your children or over the backyard fence or at the checkout station or wherever it might be. Um, don't think in terms of, well, how can it benefit me? That's true. That's good. But how can I tell this to somebody else? Don't let it be and an find its end point in you. We are to pass the baton. Okay. Imagine yourself in a relay race. You're going to take the baton. You got to run your leg you got to pass off the baton. You might run a world-class leg, you know, but if you drop the baton on the way, right, it's over. So how about meditatively? We've seen this already, Joshua 1.8. Yeah, the, the Israelites are right up to the edge of the promised land. They're getting ready to enter in, and uh, they've been given the Word of God, uh, the law of God, had it at Sinai, had it a second time, Deuteronomy, right? And they have to meditate on it so that they can be blessed in the land. And then read the Bible purposefully. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures God breathed and profitable. There is a profit to it. Purpose to determine the historical, grammatical, contextual intent of the author speaker. And read the Bible acquisitively. We're going to look about look at this um, uh, some more. Psalm forty-two, one through three. It's that great psalm where it talks about the uh, I pant after you and your word like a deer in the desert. Continuously ask developmental questions about the text, and uh, back up to D there to draw near to God. Right, John seventeen seventeen is that great statement to, of our Lord in His high priestly prayer about the Word. Your Word is truth sanctify the disciples, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And then, um, telescopically, okay, understand the parts in light of the whole. Remember the consistency and coherence of the whole scripture. Now this is, uh, I've adapted this from uh, Hendrick's book uh, on, it's called Living by the Book, and it's a book on hermeneutics, and he goes through these same three stages of observation, interpretation, application. He says telescopically, Personally, I've always seen it as a, the hermeneutical circle, as it's called. So I kind of combined them there. Okay, So we understand the words, grammar, and the connection of the words within clauses, so the syntax, that, that forms paragraphs and then chapters in the book total. Okay, But you can also look at it this way. The better I know the whole, the better I know the parts, and the better I know the parts, the better I know the whole. 
And so it's always good to have an ongoing reading program where you read just cover to cover, so you get a panoramic view of the scripture on a regular basis. Some people do it once a year. You know, it's good. And personally, I have I have trouble fitting that in because I'm always kind of got my nose way down in a text someplace. I thought, well, you know, I should spend some time just doing some overall Bible reading. And that's always helpful to me because then you begin to see the connections. You know, remember, facts are stupid things. The Bible's not, but facts are until you see them connected and brought together in a coherent whole. All right. And that's very helpful to do that. So these two things work together. And so it's good to read the parts, but also read the whole. Better you understand the whole, you'll know the parts, and it works like that. Okay, any thoughts you might have or questions about what we've seen so far? So I either answered the questions or I totally muddied the water. I don't know which. Yeah, um, actually, look at page 14. You're going to go over it first. Who, what, where, when, why, and wherefore. Those are the developmental questions. And then we're going to talk about those next time. So if you work through that from Malachi 4, 1 through 6, then we'll talk about them next time. Okay? Anything else? Okay, observation. Reading Scripture, and we're looking for certain things. And this, of course, is not a comprehensive list. There's much more that could be said about each one of these. So um, I hope that it uh, sort of whets your appetite for further reading and further study. And uh, it's sort of like the uh, professor and the student, you know. Keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. Look at it again and again and again. But uh, some of the things that we look for when we look at Scripture, we study Scripture, we look for things that are emphasized. In the 50 chapters of Genesis, the creation, fall, flood, and Tower of Babel are compressed into 11 chapters. Chapters 12 through 50 of Genesis focus on the lives of four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. God's emphasis is therefore on his chosen people, the Israelites. So we look at all those genealogies and all the begetting and begatting and everything, but it really then focuses in and tracks down through a certain line of people and develops their story. So we look for things that are emphasized. Um, we also, there's a stated purpose in many of these places where we read. Proverbs 1, 2 through 6 is one. Um, John 20, verse 30 is well known. John actually tells you why he wrote his gospel account there. Commentators often say, yeah, he, he hid the key to the door of John's gospel at the back of the house, so to speak, because it, it occurs way back there. You remember John uh, records seven of the signs, as he calls them, or miracles that Jesus did. And in that, in that verse, in that passage, he did many, many more, but these, these seven are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you may have life in his name. That has great implications for the charismatic movement, because what John is saying there is, you don't need to see miracles to generate faith. The written record of the miracles that Jesus did are there to generate faith. Okay, To me, that's a powerful polemic for the uh, cessation of the sign gifts. Um, what's written is there to generate belief. 
And that's a stated purpose. Also, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Uh, Timothy writes this, uh, Paul writes this letter to Timothy, who's ministering in the city of Ephesus, and he tells him why he wrote that letter. Uh, these are these are so that you will know how to behave in the household of God. And uh, some of you sat in on the study we did it was a couple of years ago, and uh, I just call it House Rules for God's Church, you know, because that's what it is. He tells you why he wrote that. That's always very convenient when you see the purpose right there in front of you, stated by the author himself. Kind of easy then to find out why it was written or figured out. It's right there on the surface. And then order in a chapter or verse. In Luke, the baptism of Christ, approval by his Father, precedes the temptation of Christ, testing by Satan. And also the lists of the twelve that begin with prominent disciples and then end with Judas. Okay, you can see those in the Gospels. Usually it's uh, Peter, James, and John, and then the other ones, and then down at the end, and Judas. You know, he's listed at the end. Those are those are scriptural um, indicators of priority or promise uh, 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 and that type of thing. Things that are emphasized. Also, we should look for things that are repeated. Classic passage from Isaiah 6, where he sees this vision of Christ on the throne, and it's the, the seraphim are hovering around and antiphonally singing back and forth, crying out, holy, 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 holy. Okay, repetition is telling you something. It's very, very important. And uh, other passages there as well. Also, the repetition in the New Testament of Psalm 110, uh, five direct quotes and multiple allusions in the New Testament. That's a very important psalm. It's repeated uh, several times in the Gospels in the New Testament. So we should also look for things that are related or connected. For example, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. He opens up his, his gospel account by saying, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was told he was going to have a progeny, and God promises a seed line that would come through him. But he's looking down through history. He can't see how that works out. So the New Testament opens right up, and Matthew tells you how it works out. He's looking back, and it's connected dots. Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And there's the, there's the connection of the, the, uh, the seed line promise from Abraham to Messiah. And then, of course, he goes through and talks about the whole genealogy from Abraham all the way down to Christ. And there's a lot there, too, to look at. Connections, connections, connections. The uh, genealogies in the Bible, I know it's easy to just sort of read through those and maybe not read through them, you know, sort of jump over them, you know, begetting, 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 begetting. But those are, those are showing you connections, you know. It's show, and even to sometimes the establishment of ownership over a piece of property or something. Uh, how, that's how they did it back then. You had to show that you were a descendant of certain people in order to have ownership over a piece of property or something like that. Also, very importantly, fulfilled prophecy. At his first coming, Jesus' messianic credentials were certified by the literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies also at his second coming. Look at page 74 in your notes. We're going to talk about this more when we look at prophecy and fulfilled prophecy. 
because we're going to take, when we finish observation, interpretation, application, one of the things we're going to apply that to is prophecy. But there is just a list of some fulfilled prophecies, but just prophecies concerning the Lord's death. I have a set of books that's called, the, each one has its own title, All the... So it's all the women in the Bible, all the men in the Bible, all the promises in the Bible. I think there's 15 or 16 of these books. And one of them is all the Messianic prophecies in the Bible. It's the thickest one of all of them, okay? All the doctrines in the Bible. It's kind of a neat set. But that thing is about that thick. That's all the Messianic prophecies. This list is just ones concerning his death. So uh, there at the top, the Old Testament prophecies concerning the first advent of Christ were literally fulfilled and certified his messianic credentials. And here, here's just a list of the ones, some of the ones concerning his death. And then at the bottom, the messianic prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ will also certify his messianic credentials, but only if they are fulfilled literally, not allegorically or spiritually. So the, the literal fulfillment of the prophecies concerning his first advent set us up for understanding how God fulfills prophecy, right? He does it literally. And that raises a very interesting question. What good is a prophecy that's not fulfilled literally? You know, I mean, if I, you're coming to my house and I say, well, you'll know that you're at my house when you see the, the yellow house with the, the uh, certain kind of trees around it, and I give you some characteristics, but you come to try to find my house and, and you call me and say, hey, I'm looking for your house. I can't see the yellow house. I say, oh, you, you, did you take that literally? You know? <laughs> I mean, what good is a prophecy that is not fulfilled literally, right? Think about that. It, it, makes, it would make no sense. How would you ever... How, go back and find uh, Pastor MacArthur's series on prophecy. It's very interesting. He gets into, and I don't know who he found that does this, but uh, he got a hold of a, uh, a statistician he found, or a person that knows how to compute and calculate probabilities, and they did this with these some of the prophecies in the Bible. The the possibility or probability that even one of these prophecies would be fulfilled accidentally is astronomical. It really is. That two or three would be fulfilled accidentally or by chance. Unbelievable numbers. It's, it's absolutely incredible. One of the most powerful polemics for the accuracy of Scripture and the messianic credentials of Jesus Christ is fulfilled prophecy. Okay? And I know it, it has come under uh, attack, and it, sometimes it's, uh, it's overdone by certain people, but it's in the Scriptures, and it's very, very powerful, very, very, very powerful um, to explain the veracity of Scripture. And his messianic credentials are validated by fulfilled prophecy and will be again at his second coming. So we need to, we need to read Scripture with that in mind. And then the next one is cause and effect relationships, such as persecution of the church, resulting in the spread of the gospel. I think we saw that last time. Church comes under persecution. Acts chapter 7, of course, Stephen is stoned to death. The church is persecuted and just chased out of Israel. And then, then it starts talking about, and they went out and they shared the gospel. They spread the gospel. And so cause and effect, or as James says, trials producing spiritual maturity. Count it all joy when you come under various trials, James says. 
in, you know, it's counterintuitive, and it certainly is definitely counterintuitive to the way the world looks at trials and problems. Wait a minute. You try to try to convince an unsafe person that the trials they're going through is going to produce maturity in their life. Well, it's not going to because the Spirit of God is not going to do that with them. But it's so counterintuitive. But for a believer, and you see that in Scripture, and we also can see how that works in our lives. So these are things you can see in Scripture. And D, look for things that are alike or unlike. Figures of speech like the simile in Psalm 42, things are like other things. Uh, creating similarities, using these terms like or as, or even metaphors. We're going to be talking about figures of speech. The Bible is rich in different kinds of figures and metaphors and so on. And they're all there to help us understand the word. And then things that are contrastive, adversative, or even antithetical relationships. Um, One thing set against another. For example, in Galatians 5, Paul lists the deeds of the flesh. And then he says, but, has a contrastive term there. And in many cases, you know by looking at that word, whether it's contrastive or maybe even as strong as being antithetical, the fruit of the Spirit is. So these two contrasting lists are there. And then arguments from the lesser to the greater. Uh, These are in Scripture. Powerful arguments. Rabbinic, Rabbinic teaching had these things in there. Jesus taught this way. Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. Consider the lilies of the field, how they do not spin or toil and all that. You're much more valuable than they are. Even though God arrayed them like they are, you know, God made that, and yet you are more valuable. So from the lesser to the greater. And then Paul's argument in in Romans 8, and that's a soteriological or a salvation passage. And, And you can read that for yourselves, but the idea is if he gave us Christ... And he did. Will he not also give us everything else? In other words, if he gave us the greatest, do you need to fear anything in in the realm of salvation, like losing your salvation or not making it to heaven? And of course, we also know even from uh, that uh, same passage that what's called the golden chain of redemption, where he looks at the panoramic view of salvation, whom he foreknew, these he also, and whom these he also, these he also. And it goes all the way from foreknowledge to glorification. And and nobody falls off, right? And so these are things that are um, from the lesser to the greater or that make connections. If God gave us Christ, everything else is going to be there too for us. All right? And also things that are true to life. They really are. We see real people in Scripture, real problems, real sins, griefs, betrayals, loves, joys, all of the things that uh, are in life, those people experience them. And uh, so those are things that we can look at and learn from as we observe Scripture. Okay? Have any thoughts or comments on that? It's a big list, and there certainly would be much more you could look at and uh, add to that list, but uh, hopefully that'll, that'll get you started as you, uh, as you read the Bible. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.